Heathcliff. Make the world stop right here. Make everything stop and stand still and never move again. Make the moors never change and you and I never change. The moors and I will never change. Don't you, Kathy? I can't. I can't. No matter what I ever do or say, Heathcliff, this is me now. Standing on this hill with you. This is me forever. Hello, and welcome to Pivotal Film. I am Tom Nolan. I'm Mario Ponzio, and we're in the 80s now. I can't believe we made it to the 80s. You know what's great about this? We're now, like, hip, like everything else is with the 80s. Oh, I know. like, the 80s is so in right this now. This is our nostalgia block here. We're low-key cool. <laughs> no one has ever used those two words to describe us, ever. Oh, no, not us. But I thought you were going to say people that use the word low-key. And I've been on, like, the Fortnite Reddit a lot lately. And people use <sighs> Process that, everybody. Low-key a lot. Do they for what? Just to say, like, low-key something, which I guess means subtly awesome. I don't know. Oh. English, it's always changing. That's it's terribly sad. Mm. It's low-key okay, I guess. You know what? Um, when I was coming over here today, I noticed that it smells a lot like pizza outside today. Well, there's there's two pizza places nearby. But sometimes it doesn't smell like pizza, and today it, like, reeks of pizza. I have not ate dinner, so... Is there a is, pizza fire so somewhere that I don't know about? <laughs> kind of like a... Like molasses disaster fire? Huh, kind of like that, yeah. <laughs> People are just going to get buried. We do love talking pizza. about that disaster. I feel like we've talked about that before. Yeah, not on, not on, not on mic, but that and triangle The triangle coat. fire was what we talked about. Um, uh, shirt waist. I always call it triangle waistcoat fire. It's triangle shirt waist fire. Yeah. It's so embarrassing. I started that book that Shirley Hazard wrote. Did you ever read that book? Um, Maybe. I don't know. I yeah. read the, the. I have. Yeah, yeah, I have. No. Yeah. I think David. Wrote one. I don't know. Oh yeah, David McCullough. Did he write one? I thought he did. Maybe he didn't. We'll have to look that up. That's for our book podcast, Pivotal Books. That's gonna be called Titles Not as Catchy. Um, But yeah, so we start every episode by drinking a beer. Mario, (laughs) you brought this lovely can today. Uh, I did. This is Relic's Plague Doctor. Relic out of Plainsville, Connecticut. It is a beer we don't usually. Like a kind of beer we don't usually have, uh, a double IPA. Oh, yeah, we, we are strangers. We, uh, we never drink IPAs on this podcast. <laughs> but seriously, so many other beers. What have we done, like, the, the Hoffenlagers? Well, I guess we didn't even do that on Mike. Did yeah, we did. Yeah, we did. That, Mike. Um, that was a good beer. Yeah, but, like, just IPAs in general are, are usually better. All right, ready? And the last time we did do an IPA was, was that was that Conale, right? Yeah. And that was bad. Dink. Good fragrance on the front. Mm. Hmm. Hmm. It's got a kind of um It's like a lip fruit snacky flavor? Maybe. Like synthetic fruit? <laughs> what a sell. Um I get a little pineapple on the front, Maybe but then it one. kind of finishes oh, yeah. with a very grassy kind of end. Mm. So it kind of Yeah, not, okay. I don't like the I don't want to use the word hazy, but it's just like a very earthy sort of finish for me. Yeah, it actually, the pineapple's right. It's that, that, it didn't jump out on my tongue that that's pineapple. It had that kind of odd um, synthetic fruit flavor, but definitely pineapple. Yeah, and the earthy one, the earthy is a kind of a good, a good description. 
It's not bad. It's really smooth for a I have a feeling this is going to be one of the beers that we drink that I, in the middle of the podcast, I'm ready for like my second one because my taste buds have acclimated to it and now it's, you know, really good and I want to drink a lot. And we are also drinking coffee, which is with it. That's how you do it, I think. That's how you do it. Beer tasting competitions, right? Somewhere like a Cicerone is just losing their effing mind going, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> you can't drink coffee or drink beer and then decide on the beer. That's how we do it. So we, we clear out our palate beforehand. Mm. The sherbet. We're spinning, <laughs> yeah. we're spinning the beer into a bucket. Yeah, exactly. Nice little spittoon somewhere. Um, I think maybe we should just jump right into what we've seen recently. Yeah, we have a lot about to talk movies. about. All right. um, the first one on our discussion block... Uh, we got this it written down. Is um, the new King Lear adaptation um, that Amazon put out as a TV movie? Know oh, that we have divided in three our kingdom. It is our past intent to shake all cares and business from our age, conferring them on younger strengths. What can you say to draw a third more opulent than your sisters? Nothing, my lord. <laughs> Nothing will come of nothing. Speak again. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a BBC Two movie, I think, originally. It came out a few days before on BBC Two. Yeah. And then Amazon. I, I didn't even heard about this, really. It just kind of... It was The only reason I heard about it is because, you know, it was a... If you like this, you might like this movie. Um, and the trailer was available forever, but it, it always listed, like, season one. And I was like, did they make King Lear a TV show? Oh, yeah. that would I, be awesome. When I saw it last night, actually, I saw episode one, and I'm like, oh, yeah. my God. I was like, this is gonna I was be, like oh, no. This will simultaneously be weird and awesome. Um, so it's directed by Richard Eyre, who did Iris and Notes on a Scandal. Um, he also did The Children Act, which is out now, available for streaming, and is playing in select theaters, also with Emma Thompson. Um, he also did uh, the Hall of Crown trilogy, so a lot of those... Histories, the Shakespeare mm, histories, yeah, um, and did a lot of Shakespeare on stage. Like yes, he did. Uh, yes, he did. I think he did Daniel Day Lewis in '89 doing Hamlet. That's pretty good. I would have liked to see That's that. Pretty, yeah, I would have liked to see that also. Um, but this version of King Lear store, um, stars stores stars Anthony Hopkins. No, that you know what these actors are being stored into this <laughs> production. Definitely Anthony Hopkins. Some of them are. Um, yeah, Anthony Hopkins plays Lear. Um, Emily Watson plays Regan. Emma Thompson plays Goneril. Um, and just a bunch, a bunch. Florence a lot Pugh of plays Cordelia. Jim she? Broadbent plays the Earl of Gloucester. Look it up. What is she from? I don't know, but she looks familiar, and she was really, really good. Yeah, she was good. Uh, Jim Broadbent also won an Oscar for Iris. So for Iris, yeah. Trying to come back and get his Emmy now. <laughs> he shouldn't get it. Um, he won't. Um, good. I thought this was okay. Um, I thought. That'd Emma Thompson was place. really good, and Emily Watson was really good, and Florence Pugh was really good. Um, and I thought Andrew Scott as Edgar was pretty good. I think Andrew Scott has Edgar's... The, for me, him, Thompson, and Hopkins were the best parts. It's just, unfortunately, like, reset off-air. So much of that role's just excised, so he's not able to do well, as much. He has to always be on. Yeah, the weird flaw is that they simultaneously seem to do a good job of cutting like an hour out of this play, but also like a bad job of cutting an hour out of the play. Because it's like two hours, right? They have like a four-hour-long production. Is it? Yeah, yeah, I guess so. Well, maybe. Well, that's another thing that we can talk about. So and this is I'll this go, is a an hour and fifty hour and fifty minutes. minutes yeah. <laughs> um, 
you know, so they cut all this. They cut all this Edgar stuff out. So Edgar sometimes has a line here, a line there. The story hangs together well. Um, the B story of you know should we, Edmund's, should we quickly maybe explain no, what no. King if Lear you don't is. know what King Lear is, you can just go look it up. It's King fucking Lear. Um, okay, this I thought maybe just in case if it was on our list maybe, but like oh, well, yeah. you know one of these movies, you just go look. Anthony it up. Hopkins is an old man. His daughters want to take over, except for the youngest, who's like. No, I actually love you, and the other two are bad. Well, yeah. Also, there's a bastard son. And Okay, let's go. Yeah. So, um, Anthony Hopkins is Lear. He's old. He wants to leave that his... That was me going over Tom's head <laughs> to actually give a quick description. He wants to give his land to his daughters, um, but he's only going to give it if they flatter him and tell him how much they love him. Um, Regan and Goner will do. Uh, Cordelia says that she won't flatter him. She only loves him as much as her duty as, her, as, as daughter allows her to... Lear gets pissed off. He banishes being, her. She's being honest, basically. She's right. not trying to be mean. She's no, no, just, no. She's just and she's not flattering him. Right. Um, Lear gets pissed off. Lear subsequently loses his mind. Um, there's a B plot where the Earl of Gloucester's son, half son Edmund, or his bastard son Edmund. And not necessarily the B plot. It is. Well, they always, typically there's B plots. The scholarship, in refer, the scholarship refers to like the dual plots. Yeah. So like there's these two plots going on simultaneously. There's all the Lear stuff, but then there's this these kind of behind the scenes machinations by Edmund. I would definitely to, say that to, to grab power. This is definitely more than most Shakespeare plays. This B plot plays a more integral role in the driving action of the play than. Well, that's so, so that's the weird thing. So it simultaneously plays a more integral part because they've kind of hacked a bunch of stuff out of it, but they've also left integral parts out of the out of that plot. So, yeah. like you know, um, Edgar, who is part of Ed, Edmund's plot to gather power, um, Edgar being the full son of the, the full of son of the Gloucester, he kind of Gloucester. he loses Gloucester. his Gloucester. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Um, he loses his mind also and starts personifying this character known, known as Tom O'Bedlam. Um, you know, and he just, he has these, he says these weird things to, and he, to you know, the, the audience, which is the camera. There's a lot of fourth wall breaking in this, which I don't think works super well. No, it, there's a couple times it works. Um, I think initially when Broadbent, you know, as the Earl... Um, is talking about Edmund, like the introduction to Edmund, and Edmund kind of does like this look at the camera mm-hmm. of like, what the fuck? Like the way he reacts to being called a bastard, I thought was funny. Yeah, that's the one time and only time it works. Well, and I thought that I, thought, I hate this movie. Yeah, I thought the Edmund stuff was okay for a little bit in the sense that he seems to have, while everyone else seems to have no real idea of what anyone's really thinking or feeling or doing or what anyone's real motivations are. Edmund has this clear sense of what he wants to do, and he has a clear plan, and he's going to act it out. So it almost made a kind of um, aesthetic narrative sense to have him kind of break away and, like, talk to the camera. Yeah, I But, guess yeah, so. I mean, it's kind of... It's shot very TV movie-ish. Oh, it's so... There's an MMA fight at the end of the, <laughs> the, end of the movie Which, somehow. Uh, the thing that I don't know how i feel about it. i think i want to i want to love it because it's so ridiculous but the end of the fight where um edgar defeats and then he just like suddenly just breaks his back and then blood just shoots out of his mouth yeah it's an interesting choice and that that's my my biggest problem with this beyond like i'm okay with maybe forgiving the fact that the production value is pretty low um it does feel very heavily like a tv film yeah but I'm willing to forgive that just in case of the fact that they weren't given a lot to work with, you know, and they spent all their money on spent their all their actors. money on actors, yeah. Um, but the blocking 
is so dull in this for me. Now, is it the blocking or because I noticed that too? Is the blocking or is it like the camera work? Because there's some just weird feels, shots. No, there's a lot of weird shots. I agree with that, but um, just and I, I take that I, I didn't look up too much about the crew, but just like the way uh, I or Richard Iyer kind of like frames his not frames, but uh, as his characters move and the way the characters walk, there's like there's a real authenticity to most of the performances' voices, like mm. for most of the voice yeah. and, and the, the carrying of the tone, but the way in which they're body moves and the way in which they move around the scene just feels so utterly artificial well there's a weird scene after Goneril kicks out Lear and she is having this conversation with um, she's having this conversation with her husband and she's you know she's really like digging into this you know this speech she's like hitting herself in the in the stomach she's just so serious and she's so worked up but you got this kind of like room corner long shot mm. so you can't see her face <laughs> you can't see his reaction to anything um you know i was i was kind of like why is that there and then there's another one at the end where where anthony hopkins lear is like you know everyone's dead and he's um holding up this noose that's around cordelia's neck but his other arm and this is speaks to what i think you're doing is just kind of like there, like yeah. shaking no. weirdly, and you're just like, why is he just shaking his his arm strangely? Like, what's the point of this? Well, I think the thing that got me too is um, an early scene when he's at uh, Goneril's house, you know, with his troops, and they're you know they they've been hunting and they're doing like the dinner ho dinner ho chant, yep. and it's just such a weird kind of like march that he suddenly breaks off from, and just everything about that feels so. St- Staged. And there's such an artifice to this. We talked previously, you know, about Polanski's Macbeth. Yeah. At least I did because of my movie. Um, my, I helped do no, You made it. it. Yeah, yeah. Obviously. Uh, but that, there's, that feels very natural. It actually feels like a film. It actually feels somewhat lived in, even though, you know, it's, it's using mm-hmm. language that we're not <laughs> used to. You sure. Can, but you can follow along just from the vision of what you're seeing. This is, I think if you're unfamiliar with Lear, there's, you can't follow it. You can't follow the body of the work. Right. And I think that's the sign of a really poor adaptation for Mm -hmm. me is when you cannot, when a, when a lay person or not, I'll say a lay person, when a person who's not familiar with the work isn't able to kind of like follow it. I I think there's an issue there. Well, I, let's, I mean, this speaks to like one of my main problems with it and kind of something that we mentioned off air. I think you mentioned that it was, it seemed too small, Mm -hmm. Um, which I felt also, I mean, Lear, I think inherently seems very cosmic to me and very big and very like grand and like the themes are big and the emotions are big and like everything's. Everything's big, and I don't know if that comes from just like having read the play a couple of times, um, you know, or you know, and reading Harold Bloom's essays about it, or from Ran, you know, what I mean, and how that looks, and in in what Kurosawa did to adapt Lear into that realm of of time and space. Um, well, Kurosawa, kind of like the king of adapt. Sure, <laughs> but like Shakespeare doing Lear as like a kind of weird political like thriller yeah. and doing everything and like you know doing stuff in bunkers and big brew and like big dining rooms it's like this okay. highly like militarized world they create too seems such like an easy cop out 
Like well, I understand their their attempt to modernize it. Um, but does it need to be like it doesn't? It doesn't, it doesn't seem to make any to be sense because he's not a he's not a business person. He's the fucking king. Yeah, and he's no, not I, dividing I up he's, like a company. He's dividing up a lot of. He's dividing up a country. Uh, there's there's a version of Hamlet, uh, that Ethan Hawke two thousand version. That yeah, I don't yeah, yeah. think it's very good itself, but it, it kind of relates it to the business, the corporate world. Yeah, yeah. And I think that works a lot more. I think Lear could be done. In a similar fashion, I don't know exactly how, but if you want to modernize it, or if you still want to modernize it, just don't fucking make it England. You know, maybe like you might have to change some of the language. You're granted if they change some of the language, but it just you're left wondering like, why is it this way? Well, like you know, you can't just say like it's an alternate universe England. It's like no, you can't yeah, just yeah. like create this own universe that you then don't live in because it doesn't. <laughs> it uses like stock footage of war scenes. Yeah, what the fuck was that? There's, like, two scenes of, like, a silo burning and, like, something else. Like, why? Yeah, and I understand, like we said, we understand that the production value had limitations, but then you just don't modernize it if you can't commit and you can't offer the value. If you yeah. can't put forth the work. If, you know, the scene of, of Gloucester and Edgar on the cliff looks like you just pulled off to the side of the freeway and ran out ran out to do a quick six-minute shot yeah. because you didn't have the proper permits... Maybe just don't do that, and maybe don't use so much computer generated, <laughs> computer generated fog. Yeah, I don't know. Oh my god! And, um, and the shopping cart Lear situation, where it looks like they had to like film on a Sunday oh, evening. And that's that 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 scene in the play is so good, but it really takes you fucking out of it when like Edgar and. Gloucester is sitting on a bench and there's just a car park sign. Yeah. <laughs> like right over his head. He's like, what is happening well, here? They're, and they're walking by the roadway and you just see like Ford Focus is just driving by. And for one thing, it's supposed to be like during a wartime and it's just like people are going about their everyday life. Yeah, when the soldiers show up, they just kind of seem to show up. Yeah. They don't seem like it's like a war torn city. It's just like, oh, here's these people. Oh, there's some soldiers. Oh, and there's that is a major problem too. And like I, I keep fucking on the production value, but fuck it. You know what? If you can't do it, oh, if you can't, the if production you can't value do, is weird. If you can't do it, don't do it. But like you can tell that there's only like fifty extras in this film. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like at all times you're just like, this is not a war going well, on. There if, is nothing going on. What about even like, you know, the the infamous now, I'm calling infamous MMA scene where they have this whole huge courtyard to have a fight in. And they've cordoned they've off these two mats. guys on on one like gym mat, and they've got a bunch of guys just standing around, and they're fighting in like a you know a space that's as big as this table that we're recording and the what podcast. A, what a <laughs> fucking poorly choreographed fight! Oh, I too. know. There's this is supposed to be you know a climactic moment. There's supposed to be some sort of gravitas to it. Gravity. This, this is the, scene, the battle just, for the the fate of England. Yeah, and and more than that, like the battle of like. Edgar's battling for like his his deceased father now, and, and sure. Edmund's fighting for like his rights as a human being, and they just kind of like bumble around. Where did they get those gloves from? Yeah, <laughs> Jesus. Also, I love the fact like I like John McMillan in this. Yeah, um, has Edmund. <laughs> just I like looking at his previous roles. Like this was like his first major thing outside of a video game, Horizon Zero Dawn, where he played Varl. But besides that, he was like analyst number two in Dark Right Rises. I'd say though he rises to the task. He's a good Edmund. I think he's pretty good. I yeah. don't think they do anything spectacular with him. But he and that's the thing. The performers, at least vocally and like, yeah, how they emote. They they carry I think it. so. Except I mean, for Jim Broadbent. Like, Jim Broadbent's awful. Well, so Jim Broadbent. So the last thing I think we should talk about is you get into these. 
Um, how do you win an Oscar for Iris? No, I think because I like Jim Broadbent a lot. I think some, sometimes he's really good. I think you can run I liked in, him on Hot Fuzz. I think you run into these situations sometimes with um, Shakespeare. And Anthony Hopkins is guilty of this in this movie as well, where um, you just get the kind of Shakespeare run, and you just start like you just start saying your lines super fast and emoting like a great deal and everything kind of gets lost in this like long train of Shakespearean dialogue. Yeah, and I think I think Emily Watson kind of falls to that bit. She does a lot of that. Um, I think Hopkins does that at times. Uh, I think Hopkins lately has gotten pretty lazy as an actor. Mm. Um, but there are some moments, especially like when he's falling into badness, they kind of, and a few reviews have mentioned this about how he, kind of does something that's that's kind of similar to to falling into like dementia in how he's doing the line reading and the way he's carrying himself and and way he's expressing mm-hmm. anger and way he's kind of like lost in his lines and i think that was clever well i think i think that's most clear when he's in that scene with the fool um after he gets evicted from goneril's house and they're just sitting on they're just sitting on some cases yeah and they're having a conversation he's just like i don't i don't you know i don't want to be mad um, and the fool's kind of doing his fool thing and giving out all this wisdom. Carl Johnson's really good. In this. He's, he is very good. Yeah, um, he has that. He has a little bit of that there, where you can kind of see, like an awareness, but like that something's wrong, and that like he can sense something weird. But he also like has these cosmic feelings of like I used to. I'm the king of of something. I mean, Harold Bloom talks about how. Um, you know, it's not really that he's not like a fallen king. He's more of like a fallen deity um, who's been stripped of his powers and now has like now has nothing. He used to control the world and now he controls absolutely nothing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but there's some scenes where he's just yelling inarticulately at people. And if I wasn't reading along, because that which I love to do with this stuff um, while I was watching it, mm. um, I wouldn't have known what the hell he was saying. Yeah, no. It's just an angry 80-year-old growl. This is definitely something, too, if somebody isn't familiar with the subject, like, you have to put on subtitles, because some of the times people do run through the lines too quickly, especially Hopkins. Um, Watson does that. Overall, though, I think this is the complete skip. Yeah, you're not going to get that hour and 15 minutes back. Yeah. Or you could do what I do and just basically be miserable the entire time, but really (laughs) rest in the misery. Like just enjoy the fact that you're mad. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, it's it's bad. It's got good reviews, but those reviews are incorrect. I guess it's good for what it. I mean, I don't know. There's not a lot of King Lear productions and like and the actors like, direct. Are, and, well, when we were talking about reviewing it, we were just like, well, the because it's Lear and because of the actors, don't we kind of have to watch this movie? Which I guess is true to a point, but like you could probably do way better. Yeah, than and, this. and it's it's it is a hard. It's notoriously a hard play yeah. to do, um, and it's not. I'm not. I'm not shitting on Richard e- like Iyer here and saying like, "Oh, what a terrible job." I mean, I do think he did a bad job here, but you know, he's a great director. I love Iris. Mm-hmm. Uh, Notes on a scandal. This is a good movie. Right over there. Yeah. Um, but this just is not not good. Yeah. So all right. Uh, the other film we watched, which we might have a little more longer of a conversation, just because of. My adoration of this director uh, and writer is Hold the Dark, the new Netflix film written by Macon Blair, directed by Jeremy Solionet. Stop that phone call for today, guy. Phone call to your wife. 
It's coming, ain't it? In this, Jeffrey Wright plays Russell Core, a nature writer who has had a history of hunting wolves, um, mm. who gets called to remote Alaska by Medora Salone, played by uh, Riley Kuehl, um, whatever, fucking Elvis Presley. That's good. Uh, because her son has been taken by wolves, the third of such children, mm-hmm. he has been called upon to hunt and kill the wolf. He gets up there and discovers, in fact, that uh, the wolf potentially was not responsible for this child's murder. And Alexander Sarsgaard's uh, Vernon Sloan, who's been off at war, comes back after suffering an injury uh, and decides to reap vengeance as he tries to hunt down his wife, who it turns out has been actually the murderer mm. of the son. And from there, Jeremy Soline gets to rest in his playground of violence, gore, existential nihilism, but now in Alaska mm. and not in Oregon. So moving, moving a little further west yeah. and north there. So Yeah, he's getting colder. I mean, he actually started, like, he did start, like, on a beach. Then he went up to the Pacific Northwest. Now he's in Alaska. Space is next, I'm guessing. That's colder. Second man. Oh, man, maybe. <laughs> you know he's going to do? He's going to do, um, oh, God, you, were, you see Scrooged? Yes. Where, uh, they the beginning uh, commercial for that <laughs> Santa oh, attack yeah, yeah, yeah. movie. Jeremy Soline is going to do it. Awesome. Let's do it. I fucking I get he so should, I get so hard over that. To he be should honest. totally start making that. And by that I mean his, an erection. His next career is just making. He just is actually like, making the fake movies that show up in movies. But then he's like, but it always has to be colder. Yeah, way colder. And <laughs> are just, all taking place in Antarctica. And eventually just gets to absolute zero. Mm-hmm. I don't know how, how he's going to pass that. Then it becomes a chain reaction movie. Ooh, yeah. interesting. Um, thoughts on this? I, um, I feel like I'm going to be the one that gets a little more wordy. I liked this movie. it. Oh, I could get fucking wordy. Um, yeah, it's my second least favorite Jeremy Soline film. Um, second least favorite? <laughs> that means it's your second favorite? No, he's he's mad four movies. Uh, Murder Party is my least favorite. Oh, okay, okay. The production value, that's not great. It's still fun. Um, but, you know, Blue Ruin and Green Room are in my top 110 movies. Yeah. Um, so. I liked aspects of it. I give him. I would give him a high five for the attempt. Um, that it's a failure. Um uh, doesn't I, I i'm not gonna dump it specifically on him or on making blair i would just say as we've kind of talked about off air um that it might be a failure of like uh, to adapt a problem book yeah and i'm not going to this is based on a william uh Girardi? Gir- Giraldi, yeah. Giraldi book i'm not gonna give him i'm not gonna give either of those guys you know, the benefit of the doubt, because they could have easily at any point said, we're just not going to make this book. But the they decided to work closely with the book, and in doing so, have made a movie that is as narratively flawed as the book. No, and, and I agree. Um, you know, Jeremy Solonay has proved himself to be a really good director, 
and writer. Uh, Macon Blair, who did I Don't Feel at Home in This World anymore last mm-hmm. year for Netflix. Fucking great movie. Um, has a very Soliane feel to it, but kind of rests in its own. It's a little, it's a little more optimistic of a movie. Mm. Um, well, than, Melanie than Linsky Soliane. and Elijah Woods, you know. Yeah, well. It's going yeah. to be a happy movie, I mean, it's right? Still, it's still definitely not so happy. Um, but I, I do think the choice to make such a close adaptation of this book, which, you know, I tried reading. I know I know you read completely through it. I read, sure started book. reading it and just couldn't get through it. Mm. Um, it's just, I think this the book was just a flawed source, and I don't think that they needed to make such a close adaptation. I mean, my problem with this is it's so technically proficient of a film, yeah. but there's so much wrong with the narrative. But I think they did. I mean, I think the problem is that they, I think they did. If they wanted to make a version of this movie, of this book, you had to hew close to it because if you don't hew close to it, you're not really left with a lot of stuff. So there's a there's a there's a, a mystical bent that you seems done, to want to run. Done a naked lunch style adaptation of this. Sure, but is he up for a naked lunch style adaptation of an Alaskan wolf novel? That's true. You could have done Candyman. <laughs> Candyman was like a really loose adaptation of uh, The Forbidden, which is a terrible book um, or story. I don't even fucking remember. Fuck you, Clive Barker. Yeah, that should be another theme of our of our podcast. Add Lawrence Kasdan or add Clive Barker to the list that includes Lawrence Kasdan and James Foley and James Foley. Um, which we're not even sure why we're saying fuck you to James Foley yet. But no, I think reading... we kind of like James Foley. I think yeah. if we really thought about it, we. I think I think Foley. we're just I think we just say fuck you, James Foley, because we we're like confounded him. by James. Foley. Yeah, that's what it is. Um. So, there's so, there, there's a mystical element that runs through here that isn't that he didn't he can't sell because he's doing exactly what the book did and the book doesn't sell it any better than that he did, which makes for me anyway, which removes some of the some of the stakes of this of this because it's just if it's not the if it's not if it doesn't have that mystical element then it's just dead people. And there's just hundreds of dead people. <laughs> it's seemingly hundreds of dead people. Dozens of it dead his, people. It is his highest body count in yeah. any, any um, film. But it's clear from the from the very beginning of this of this movie that being dead doesn't really matter. No one cares if you of you if if you die in this movie. Actually only one person cares. And and it's just the police officer's wife. We don't even really know if she cares. We just are told well, by the guy that I might say, kill the police officer. Ru- Russell Core seems pretty upset during the shootout. <sighs> Why? He says, just stop it really loudly. Stop it. <laughs> um, I see, my, I, my problem with this, holy is I, I don't think Soliane and Blair particularly liked a lot of the material themselves like it feels like they didn't really like a lot of the material no itself. i don't know i feel like it, it i feel like it it speaks to some of the stuff that was happening and i only saw the green room so i can't speak to blue room and i wish i had seen it ahead of time i just had other stuff to do um but it speaks to some of the aspects of of green room there's a marginality to the characters there is a there is a um like push to the brinkness of the characters the characters live in a kind of um like you know and the green room was a van of desperation, and then it was a green room of desperation. Like, these people live in, like, rough-hewn cabins of desperation or, like, mining caves of desperation. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so there's a, there's that kind of, like, that that interior darkness that runs through, I would assume, like, all of his movies. Yeah, it's all there's there's all kind of this 
dread. Like Rick, we talked about with the green room conversation right. and the blue ruin conversation. Even though there's a lot of humor in those movies, it's it's there's a lot of dread. In right, and that's so there my, is no humor in this one, by the well, way. Well, there is. There's attempts at it, but it's awful. Yeah, it does not. Um, there is. So my point then is, what are the stakes? Like, if in the green room, it was you know, the stakes escalated to the point where it was we got to get in, we got to get a show, we got to get out of this room, we got to got to get out of this area like alive. Do you know what I mean? Um, in this, I don't. What is anyone trying to do? I mean, you know that Vern's trying to find Medora, but you don't know why, and you don't know to what end. I mean, I think you know what I mean. And then I think then, his oh. plot. Oh, sorry. Let me, no, no, go ahead. I think his plot works because he's shown early on as this like force of nature. That opening scene sure, sure, where sure. he's in Iraq, you know, and he just very clinically kills the people that try to attack them, uh-huh. um, and then kills that that fellow soldier just really coldly just stabbing him repeatedly and giving the knife to the rape victim. Yep. Um, stabs a, sol- a fellow soldier because he's raping an Iraqi uh, woman. Mm-hmm. Um, and then even when he gets shot in the neck, he's just kind of like sitting there, pulls out his gun, doesn't really care. So he's, he kind of gets this like Anton Chigar style force of nature. So he has a mission. You know he's on the mission. It doesn't really matter what he, how he's going for it. Um, I think that works, but I agree with what you're going to say with like Donald Merriam, who's like, you know, James Vagedale, just looking... For justice, but like they're kind of him and core, especially, are kind of like wandering around for answers, and that is kind of meandering. In well, a way. Wonder, so the stakes aren't there in those moments. And because I wonder, like, when he has so you know the gunfight. It's not even like a gunfight. It's just the mowing down of police officers from an attic from that cabin. Um, by Chion, played by um, Julian Black Antelope, who was really good. I thought. he is. He's really good. But like that conversation, all the performances in this are I think really so too solid. And I think uh, Saulnier's um, actually I hope getting a reputation for being able to get good work out of people. Um, you know what I mean? So yeah, he'll I mean, be able it's, to it's get... hard to say because like I think all these actors. I mean, I don't know anything much about Julian Black Antelope and uh, Riley Kuehl, but um, I like Alexander Skarsgård a lot. I like Jeffrey Wright. I like all these other people yeah. a lot. I think I mean, Alexander Skarsgård is the only good part of Mute. Oh, yeah, I didn't see Mute. Was it all right? I think it's all right. A lot of people hated it. Well, Paul Rudd's also pretty decent in it, but, like, I should he's see getting it. good. He's always, I, like I think Duncan he's always Jones. getting yeah. good actors. Um, but he knows what to do with the movies. And that's, so that's the thing. So you want the next movie, I guess. With, with someone like him, you want every movie to escalate to, like, a next, to the next plane. So if this movie, if the next movie gets smaller, but he gets a bunch of really good actors to work with, um, or continues to get really good actors to work with, that's that's good. Um, but to Five go back characters to the, in search of an exit wound. <laughs> yeah. um, to go back to that Chion conversation between Miriam uh, and Chion, um, we know the audience knows that Chion was involved in killing those cops. We know it, and apparently Miriam knows it also, but for no discernible reason other than the fact that he understands that Chion is sad because his daughter got killed by a wolf and he doesn't have a body to bury he makes no attempt to arrest him yeah at, and he's like oh i just brought all these people and but there's you at no point do you think like he's going to do anything about this at all um well, and think, then he I just the mows is, him down i think the entire idea is miriam trying to play it constantly safe um but yeah i do think that's just to lead to the i mean and that, once again this is a fault of the novel but it's a fault of 
of Selena and Blair to like lean into this. But it's a so it's a major plot point of the novel. So I suppose that you can't really do it without. You can't really do the movie without including it. But they also include an almost word for word, like um, I think you can. version of the conversation they have in the book. And that's the I do you think know what that's I mean? the problem. So why too, not like, adapt it a little bit? Why not make it a little tenser? Why not make it something else? Yeah, because just like, left it what it is. Because there are some good lines that are taken from the book that you know kind of carry over. Where he talks about the um, the coroner, you know, he's retiring to San Diego in a month. He's like San Diego. I've never heard of it. Yeah, that's good. Like that's a good line. And um, but I just don't think you need to lean so heavily into what is a bad book. Yeah, they just they well that's the the, the sh- premise is great in the first like. 40 minutes to an hour, I think, are really good. I think, like, it starts losing it at the shootout. Yeah. Which I like. I like the sh- I know you don't like the shootout. Well, I think, I think it's the shot well, but I think it's narratively dumb. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. I think it's narratively nonsense. But I do think it's it's technically great. I, I agreed, because, I mean, I even commented to myself, because <laughs> I just watched it by myself. The um, children are like, oh, no, Dad's doing it again. Like, it sounds really good. Like those gunshots and like it hitting stuff like sounds like and like sounds really awesome. And Julia Block, I just have to say, the, the editor, she's been the editor for you know all this. I don't know if she edited Murder Party, but she did Blue Ruin and Green Room. I just like the fact that so many editors right now would kind of like make that a really rapid cut kind of like scene to kind of add this intensity, mm. kind of like that Greengrass style, very. Frantic. You so get a cut for every this, bullet. Yeah, yeah. This is just leans into it, and just like it, but it just settles on it. And you know, it's it's, but you still get a nice sense of place and every everything, right? And it makes it's just like look at this person being shot a lot, but then it's like too long. Yes, and I think you 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 we, were the one that kind of we kind of talked about this off air. So like as you are watching these people get shot to hell, um, you kind of understand that like there's this is only going to end one way. He's either going to kill literally everybody or they're going to get him. And he's obviously not going to kill everybody, so they have to <laughs> so they have to get him. Um, you know, it's different, I think, because you saw... There's actually... It's vaguely reminiscent of some of the deaths in RoboCop. Like, the way that, like, these this gun just eats people. Um, but it's not sold the same way. It's sold very serious. So you're just like, well, he could just kill everybody. If he, yeah. if they if it gets to that point, he's just everyone's dead. So what's the point yeah, of this? Yeah, he stops for a second when Cor says stop it, but it's like, but it it does feel like he's just you know he's just going to kill everyone. And and like once again, it's I don't think that's a fault of how it's edited. I think it's a fault of Sony and, and, and Blair, in the sense that they just had to like do this scene from this. Yeah, and I look. I, I wanted to really like this movie and I part of me still does like it for what it really for what it wants to do um I think I just think they just it, they just they just missed it it's like a narrative miss it's an example I think of a really proficient writer and director with really solid actors um and a great technical team that shot beautifully the score is solid the editing like I said is great doing a source material and like I usually don't like to say like oh it's the source material's fault but like yeah. doing source material it's fucking garbage well there's so there's a there's a line in the book closer toward the end where Kor is talking to Miriam and um I don't know if it was I don't think it's a line of dialogue I think it was you know it was like exposition kind of 
talk, referring to the idea that where they are in Alaska is really close to where, um, like humanity meets the wilderness, and it kind of implies that there's you know in a very I'm going to say this in the most Stephen King way possible, but so I apologize that like it's a spot where like reality is thin, um, and where the same rules don't inherit necessarily apply to everyone living here as they do to people living to living more inland. Well, they, like they mentioned that line early on where she says, you know, oh, my daughter wanted to move to Alaska, of course, says it, and she's in Anchorage, and, you know, um, Medora says that's that not place Alaska. is in Alaska. Right. But so the idea, and that's where I think, so they talk, you know, the wolves are, like, obviously a big thing in this, but there's an, there's an idea early in the, in the novel, and, and also in the movie, that there is like a kind of communion with the wolves, um, which isn't which isn't true, which isn't really there. The wolves are almost just kind of like um, uh, like a, a coat rack for him to hang some kind of like uh, you know motifs on. Um, yeah, it's like, the, but there's no like these people are fucked up for totally different reasons other than like the thin layer, you know that hangs between, you know, nature and humanity and all this other stuff. They're just, they're just ruined. Which is a, which they're just is ruined a, people. A great example of where I don't think Selena and Blair trusted the material enough. And, you know, this was actually shot, but Selena got rid of it and just kind of alludes to it is the fact that Medora and Vernon are brother and sister. And that, yeah. you know, their Bailey, their, their son is a product of incest. And that's why I talk about him always being sick in the movie and like how she doesn't have a memory without him. And I think it seems like that, 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 that really kind of lean into the fact that there's things from the source material that I think they found interesting, but they didn't trust it. And I think if you don't trust the source material enough, you can't you make shouldn't the movie. Yeah. adapt it. I mean, if they looked at it and were like, listen, this idea of a really violent, idea of like nature versus man with this kid being eaten by eaten quotation marks by wolves and you know this force of nature trying to like find his wife if you want to adapt that part loosely do that you know i think a really good movies in that premise there is not so closely followed well especially because the i mean what the there's so many loose threads well, that the, just hang. The presence of Court anyway, and they like the the book and the movie explain it. It was like, oh, she wants a witness. She just wants people to know what she did. But did why? To be punished. Why the hell would she want that? They never go into that at all about why yeah, that's no, important. And there's no like and punishment. And she didn't get taken by. And the boy didn't get taken by wolves. And but the town accepts that the boy did get taken by wolves. So if she's trying to prove to the town that the boy got taken by wolves. Why? Oh, no, she said she, she also said she wants... I mean, the idea is she said she also wants to be punished. I think she has the idea that Cor will find it, and that will kind of set off the chain of getting Vernon back. She thinks, like... I think the idea is... Why? Like, get yeah, no, it's... It doesn't make any sense. And and another thing that, like... This whole entire thread of community and family runs through this. Um, And whoa, my biggest thing that, that pissed me off about this movie... um, Like, also, like, a Chekhov's gun moment, almost... There's this after when Miriam kills um, Chion, you know, Chion says, you know, you know, that call is coming of that your wife's going to get the call of, of your death. You know, you mm. can't you can't prevent the inevitability of this like black shade of death. Mm. Um, you know, Miriam's wife is pregnant and they, they kind of do all this foreshadowing of like after this is all over, I'm going to go on vacation to like the Caribbean. 
And then, you know, right before the climax, Miriam gets shot through the throat with an arrow and dies. Pretty casually. Yeah, very casually. Because a very quick death. Poor James Badgedale basically becomes the new Sean Bean and he fucking dies and everything. <laughs> Guy oh, needs to stay out of Alaska, especially. Um, and, and so you're, you're, you're waiting for... Like, I, I understand like the, the idea of justice callousness of life and callousness of life and death and of the forces of nature that, you know, this person who has this future ahead of him, who's this morally kind of pure character, mm-hmm. who's, who's smart and intelligent. Yeah, that's yeah. a big thing about this movie, too, is, like, everyone's competent. So it's interesting to see Selene not doing his clusterfuck <laughs> trilogy yeah, anymore. Yeah. Um, you know, dying so so casually, and and that's fine, but, like, you, you need that payoff. <laughs> Of, like, seeing his wife get the phone call. I mean, I understand, like, that wasn't the point, but you can't leave threads like that hanging. And there's so many hanging, like, de- hanging chads, if we're in the year fucking 2000. Yeah. Of well, just story threads. Well, this is where, this is where you would, this is how you adapt a book to a movie. So instead of having Kor's daughter show up, um, which she does at the end, which, which she does at the end I of the book. Why not have Miriam's wife show up? At Cora's bedside, and why doesn't he? And he's like, "Oh, I'll you know, what's the story?" He's like, oh, "I'll tell you the story." Why doesn't he tell her the story? Because then there's at least this, they, like they've established this connection here. We don't know anything about Cora's daughter. Yeah, and I don't we know think anything it, I about don't think her. It's it's really solidly. I mean, it's sold that he wants to see his daughter, but it's there's an estrangement, but we don't not, know why. And it's not really satisfying to see them back together. There's no, there's no attachment to this, but. Yeah, the, I, that just needed to be fulfilled. And that's my problem with this movie. I like this movie from the sense of it's really technically sound. Um, I think it's worth watching just because... You should definitely watch it. It's yeah. things like that. And, and I think there's people are going to find a lot of enjoyment out of it. Um, but just the base narrative of it's a too close of an adaptation, I don't think this needed to be adapted. No, it definitely didn't need to be adapted and if it was going to be adapted it needed to be adapted more effectively and more effectively in the sense of you don't need narratively. you don't need to it needed to be narratively you just, you just go oh wolves kidnap well you got the I mean uh, um, wolves kidnap really, yeah wolves kidnap somebody hold he's really good at at presenting Alaska and presenting this very specific place and also presenting like the rules of this place um but it's once you get once you get lower than that into like the nitty gritty of, of the narrative, it just kind of it just it's just yeah, flat. I would, I would have to say overall, I think I, I kept comparing this a lot to um, and and this movie's more essentially based on wolves and kind of like the forces of nature versus man. Uh, Joe Carnahan's The Gray. Mm, yeah, I, yeah. Saw I that thought one. so too. Yeah, um, that's I think that's a movie that does kind of a lot of the the ideas better. It's a little more of a religious lean um, about like. Existentialism. But this could have done that religion. too with like the mysticism of the yeah. town and whatever. But with um, you know whatever. But I think that's kind of a movie that that hits a lot of these narrative and um, nature marks uh, in, in that setting. Or the Edge, starring well, Alec Baldwin, Baldwin and Anthony Hopkins, Hopkins. and uh, the Bear. That's not a good movie though. <laughs> I hate that movie. Um, but, all right. Yeah. Well, it's, it's worth a watch. Watch um, it. If you're going to watch this or King Lear, watch, uh, watch this instead. Mm. Also, you know, you get to see a cheek explode again. Third time in a row, Selene's destroyed a cheek. 
Yeah. Guy fucking hates cheeks. And it's like, it's more brutal each time, I think. This dude's like teeth. Yeah, this movie's got a I lot of... I slowed that down. I was like, why is that so... Why is that? This movie's got a lot of pumping blood. Oh, yeah. Blood just shoots out of people. So, yeah. so see... So you like that. So see it. Perfect month for it, I guess. <laughs> um, all right, we'll be right back with our number 89s. Welcome back. My number 89 is the 1939 William Weller adaptation of Emily Bronte's Wuthering Heights, starring Laurence Olivier as Heathcliff, a outcast in a sort of uptight, proper world uh, who falls in love throughout his lifetime to Kathy, played by Meryl Oberlin. Um, And these two treat each other pretty shitty throughout their entire lives. Hmm. Eventually she dies. Then he's sad and alone, then he dies. But then he's not alone anymore. Mm. He's with he's with He's with Kathy as a Kathy. ghost. Which even if even if you don't even know if like the ghost thing is, is, is true, but Well they have that guy at coming at the end of the movie and just say, I, I saw them. I saw them, I did. There was only one path. Shared delusion, my friend. Um, <laughs> this isn't necessarily a movie I love. 1939, often considered one of the better years uh, for like Best Picture in mm-hmm. the Oscars. Um, you had the you had Wuthering Heights as a nominee, uh, Wizard of Oz, um, one of the Frank Capra films. I think it might be Mister. S- was he or Mister Deeds or Mister Smith? Mm-hmm. I think it maybe Mister Deeds. Um, and the eventual winner, unfortunately, Gone with the Wind. Uh, so this was one of the ten nominees. Um, it's a good adaptation. I think it does a lot of omissions from the novel. Um, I think the big thing that stands out for this movie, um, for me is, well, the first fact is, is my mom loved this movie Mm -hmm. when I was young. So it was really probably my first true introduction to slow black and white films from an era that, you know, predates even cultivate my, my view of film. I, I think a lot of people, at least a lot of my you know schoolmates and whatnot always had a problem with black and white cinema especially stuff this old yeah and stuff this old this slow very flat in a lot of ways Mm. there's not a lot of like even though it ends up winning the um best black and white cinematography uh robert or greg tolan wins for it oh you know it's yeah it's it's not doing much um nothing's really impressive in, in the photography of it so visually it's not a very striking movie uh, Alfred Newman's score, I think, is great. Um, that's mm-hmm. great for its time. Well, that's and that's I mean, it, another it, thing. It's, it's it's very of its time. Yeah, it's, it's playing it's its throughout time. the whole movie. Um, you know, and Kathy's theme is still like one of the more like replicated it is. scores. And it's yeah. a good it's a good piece. Um, but overall, it's it's ultimately kind of an average movie, but it's very competent. And there are a few scenes in it that, even as a child, struck me. And it interested me. Mm-hmm. Um, and they all base in, in my true reason for putting this film here is the fact that this introduced American audiences to why hold probably has one of the greatest, if not the greatest actor, uh, Lawrence Olivier. Mm-hmm. Um, he just embodies Heathcliff. I really like, actually, the, the book Wuthering Heights, the Emily Bronte book. It's, it's really nihilistic and misanthropic in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, this movie actually pulls back a bit 
on how miserable Heathcliff is and how miserable Kathy is. Um, it actually does a lot more than I would expect for a 1939 film. But Lawrence Olivier's Heathcliff really embodies just that disgruntled, stoic nature. I think the scene that has a child, and, and even now I really adore, is when he is at Kathy's house after she's uh, been married. Mm-hmm. And they're having that dance. And he's already kind of like got involved with Isabella. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's maybe a two-minute sequence where he's just staring, staring, at, her. staring yeah. at her. And there is this, you know, you don't get a lot of, in this of the time, like non-vocal acting. Mm. And just everything Olivier's doing with his eyes sells a mixture of like um adoring her like 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 love and obsession but a lot of hate yeah and a lot of spite well it's it's amazing um it takes a really good actor to punish another character literally by looking at her from across the room yeah and that's what he's that's what he's doing in that scene he's he's and just punishing her and it's it's creepy, it's unsettling, it's uncomfortable. But it's but he's so like attractive, um, especially in comparison to almost everybody else in the movie. He has this real presence about him. Um, well, I think I think both of the leads are striking. I think that really oh, yeah. sells it too. Like Weiler, well, more so Goldwyn, like in his casting. Uh, well, just, just I mean, there was a lot of it was a mer- back and forth about how. Who was actually going to get cast? Because for a while they wanted Betty Davis. But wasn't it a Merle Oberon vehicle? Like I thought yeah, they originally did it for it was. her. Like it they was. wanted to make this movie because they wanted to stick her in the role of Cat. They did. They did. Um, there was there was a lot of like back and forth. Jack Warner had wanted it for a while. Mm-hmm. I think um, I can't remember who originally had it, uh, but they kind of like sold it. So it's kind of shopped around to a lot of the major studios, and eventually Goldwyn got to use it as a vehicle. Mm-hmm. Um, and Merle Oberon does a competent job. I don't think she's amazing i think more she's a striking figure she doesn't sell the pain no not at all but she's yeah she is um she is very striking and that works in the sense that you can see you can see it why he might pine for her for for all of these years and and you know um feel so broken up by not having her um if we're you know if we're just going on on the visual yeah um which they want they kind of want you to do a little bit um then that makes a lot of sense, and it's it's good casting from that standpoint. I think everything kind of bounces back onto just how much Lawrence Olivier is is doing everything in this. Um, I think actually also David Niven's pretty great. He's good. You know, as has Edgar. He's, he's really he's a good guy, but he's pretty broken. And he kind of sells that kind of like low tone hurt really and he, well. And he also floats on the outside of the story yeah. very well. Like so, he while not disappearing. Into like Olivier's tractor beam of like a stare, he holds you know he holds his own when he needs to hold his own. He's very much like he, he Nevin sells it very much as like an individual, while also keeping himself so pulled back that it's Heathcliff and Kathy's story. But also, what I think that does really well is is the other scene that really struck me as a child and still strikes me. And I think this is just a clever sequence for um, a, a nineteen thirty nine film is. You know, when Heathcliff's talking to her after she's died, Kathy after she's died, mm-hmm. and the other three characters kind of just, they are mourning the death, mm-hmm. and he's just saying these things that in no way, shape, or form would anybody, like, allow to be said, but it's it's very much a a theatrical sort of scene in the sense of that, that soliloquy, 
in front of other characters. So it's not necessarily a monologue because these other characters aren't hearing what he's saying. Right. This is a scene that's within a scene. I repeat till my tongue stiffens. Catherine Earnshaw, may you not rest so long as I live on. I killed you. Haunt me then. Haunt your murderer. I know that ghosts have wandered on the earth. Be with me always. Take any form. Drive me mad. Only do not leave me in this dark alone, for I cannot find you. Well, that whole scene is interesting from the perspective, the one you just said, but also that when he goes there, um, so he finds out that she's sick. You know, spoiler alert, she fucking dies. Um, (laughs) Find out she's just sick, and then she just, like, kind of, like, lumps. The most interesting death scene. But he finds out that she's sick, and he runs to her. He just bursts into, you know, um, Edgar's house, and he just runs up the stairs, and he just goes to her bedroom, and... um, he doesn't have the first conversation he has with her is not that kind of impassioned like deathbed sequence that you expect. It's him still just telling her off like you did this to yourself. <laughs> you yes, no, exactly. And I was like, "Whoa, okay. This is this is much That's when I kind of <clears throat> That's when I put the um the nihilism together. You know what I mean when it was just like after all this she's dying and he's still not going to get He's not going to let her just die without her understanding fully what she did to him. And what I think is interesting about this, too, is even though the movie ends on a somewhat uptick, you could say, in the fact that sure. they're everyone's dead, <laughs> they're dead, that Heathcliff has died in the cold, Kathy's died of this disease, and they're off together, and, you know, the observers of the story kind of sell it as, like, they're, they're there together now on the moors. Yep. You got to wonder if these two individuals would ever be happy together. And and it kind of is a somber, kind of bittersweet ending. Yeah. And the fact that, yeah, there was a yearning for one another. But I think the way that Olivier, you know, performed it and the way that, that Weiler kind of directs a lot of the sequences and blocks a lot of the sequences kind of suggests a lot more of the fact that this isn't a pleasant ending. Yeah. And to, the, to that point, and to go back to kind of Merle Oberon's performance... <clears throat> you're never really sure what she actually wants ever. No, you never even get the idea if she truly cares about Heathcliff, or if she's not. Or saying that, this or the... if she cares about Edgar. It just she just kind of feels the thing that she's supposed to be feeling according to the script. Yeah, for all you know, she might not care about anyone. I mean, she she there is a lot of like selfishness in that character early on. That but it's on the surface. It's not. From. It doesn't have that Olivier depth. No, to yeah. it. You know what I mean? Like she's not living in like grief of her decisions but knowing that she had to make certain decisions to live a certain to live a certain life or you know to get out of Wuthering Heights or whatever um, she just kind of goes along and, and acts and acts accordingly yeah but no it's it's interesting and and I, I think a lot of supporting cast you know like David Niven um, Geraldine Fitzgerald she was very Isabella good is really good I, I think almost too good in some ways uh, looking back at it now um she kind of overstages um, and outshines uh, Meryl Oberlin in, in a way that, like, she presents herself as a m- much more interesting and rounded human being. Mm. Um, and I don't think necessarily that's that's what they were going for in the production, but she has a lot more depth to her emotion and a lot more sincerity to what she's saying. And that kind of, like, looking back at it now, you know, not watching it as, like, a five-year-old, <laughs> yeah. I'm like... 
Right. I mean, obviously, you 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 wipe it away with the fact that Olivier is just so resounding in his dedication to like spite her and his obsession. Mm-hmm. But you look at it now and go like, this is a perfectly <laughs> rounded, you know, woman, and and it, you lose that sort of sympathy for Kathy, and you lose that sympathy heavily for Heathcliff. And I'm not necessarily sure that was the intention. Well, that's that's a, a really awesome point in the sense that that last I scene, did it again. Yeah, you did it. You sneak another in gold there. star. You sneak in there more I get after. three more, and I get fifteen <laughs> extra minutes at snack time. Um, oh man, uh, we're gonna have to talk about that snack time thing. No, uh, oh Isabel's fucking la- <laughs> take it from me again. <laughs> Isabel's last scene with um, Heathcliff when she's got him pinned against the door, and she's saying, um, "Why can't you let me love you?" Um, you know, all that weird, I'll be your slave. <laughs> I'll love yeah. you. All that stuff is weird. Um, but you're actually, which is which is a flaw in the movie, You it makes you kind of say, like, yeah, why, why, why can't you love her? Why can't you just love her? Well, and I and think I mean, because you know that, like, the person that's waiting for her is not, is not this person. It's not, like, this whole person. Like, he's married, like, a real person, and um, Kathy's kind of just this flighty do whatever I want, like, whatever occurs to me, person. At least that's how she's played. And it's, and also, like, once again, just, just of the VA sells the fact that, you know, no matter how rounded she would be or how much of a match she would be or how healthy she would be to him, he is blinded by this woman and blinded, not even by this woman, but by this, this life that he had wanted since he was a child um, and wasn't able to have that he, in the end, is willing to walk out into a snowstorm and die. Well, you've probably seen more Olivier movies than I have. And um, is he generally... So the one thing I thought was odd in this movie is that he didn't, like, unleash himself. It was a very interior performance. Um, But because of that, he's very static. Like, he doesn't move a lot. And part part of me perceived that lack of movement and then his just general facial expression and demeanor, like his countenance, was like a sadness... When I think it probably should have been like a brooding hate, no, and more I than a sadness. I, Is that accurate? I, I, I don't think. Like later on, when he'd perform, he he he's always kind of a very kind of stoic actor. Um, maybe not so much later in his life. Um, he kind of leaned more into his roles, uh, like like the body of his roles. Mm-hmm. Um, but he did have a fluidity. And see, that's that's the the problem I have with a lot of adaptations of this is this broodingness. Um, I think the Heathcliff is desperately trying as a character um, to askew his background. He he doesn't like where he's come from. He he wants to be this, sure. this new shape. Well, he gets and I to think have the rock thrown at him for coming from where he came from. <laughs> Fucking hilarious scene! A giant rock hits him in the head. He should be dead. Really, he's he got just, a little bit of a busted lip, which is weird because he got hit on the forehead. <laughs> yeah, and the kid just drops. That's some good actor. That kid just like. Dead drop. It was just like, poof. yeah. Um, I was like, wow, fuck! I forgot that they kill off Heathcliff in the beginning of this movie. <laughs> Fucking bashes his head in. Jeremy Solianet kind of directed the sequence. <laughs> he, should um, re- he should do a 2018 re- or 2019 remake of it. Yeah, no, 2018. He can rush it. Yeah. Uh, but I think a lot of actors. Um, I think I want to say Ray Fiennes did a variation of this. That mm-hmm. was that was he pretty did. decent. Timothy um, Dalton did one. Yeah, which is not good. Uh, 
but Ray, like, like, so Ray Fiennes does brooding well, but I don't think brooding is is what you Heathcliff should be. I think there needs to be this stoicism and this like brooding within. But he's he's working so much on creating this this fabrication, right? And I think Olivier does that. I think something that Olivier did. So basically, the movie's on my list because of Olivier, guys. Right, it's, which is awesome. Which so like, is you know, if you don't like this story, just watch the fucking elderly Olivier movies and be like, wow, why did this guy get nominated ten times for actor or supporting actor and win once? Very much deservedly once. Because but, people are idiots. Yeah, because yeah, um, Gone with the Wind won this year in 1939. <laughs> Gone with the Wind, really quickly, just a side point. That movie's fucking garbage. Oh, it's terrible. I mean, even more so than the fact that it is a horrendous movie from a, a social standpoint nowadays. Oh, it yeah. Is overproduced, overacted in many ways. Um, outside of uh, Hattie McDaniel and uh, Olivia de Havilland, uh, Clark Gable just kind of like doesn't care in it. Vivian <laughs> Lee. Repeatedly she shows she's not that good of an actress. Well, I mean, Vivian Lee's just like running around which screaming, makes, which is hilarious <laughs> that like Vivian Lee and Lawrence Levy were married, and that you know it took Lawrence Levy twenty years ago. Like, well, never mind. Oh Jesus! Um, Victor Fleming's not a very good director, but really, like it's it's four and a half hours of your life that oh, you it's don't terrible. need to spend. There was better movies nominated that year. Wuthering Heights is one of them. Wizard of Oz is... I really like Wizard well, the of other, Oz. The, uh, Wizard of Oz you just have to watch The idea that fun. Wizard of Oz didn't win that movie in hindsight, or win that Oscar in hindsight, is just preposterous. Yeah. No. It's just... It's just silly. But honestly, this movie is just here because because of Olivier. Sure. Um, and I think, like, to your point, like, yeah, there is, there's a lot of stoicism. There's a lot of that... That stonewalled face, but I think all that's a conscientious choice. I mean, this guy, man had been, you know, performing in in Britain on in cinema and on stage for you know decades, like a, several decades to this point, I believe, and just he captured what you read in Heathcliff um, that I don't think anybody else has really done. That hasn't captured this kind of like double this double facade he has, yeah, of being a brute, not being truly a brute being made into a brute by his surroundings and then trying to go back into what he could have been, the kind of like good natured but fearful sort of person he could have been with this like weird stoicism. I think Olivia is the only one that captured that kind of layers and just with non vocal yeah. acting. Well that's and that's literally the thing I was just going to say is that like he does a he does so much with just there's so much energy to his face and to his staring um He's he's and, terrifying and, at points, right? Without and necessarily doing anything. Those close-ups of him actually almost work better than like the medium shots where he's just kind of standing posed in his coat, yeah, like just kind of looking at somebody. It's like, well, like, I don't know what's happening now because he's just standing there. But like when you show me his face, um, it's weird. I can it's... understand like what he's going through and then, like the pain he's in. And it's weird because it, it's it's both uncomfortable, but like you don't want to look away so there was like a like a fearfulness to it like like you're kind of afraid of what this this character could be capable of but you also like you feel that kind of pain and it's just fucking olivier man him and wells two actors who i don't i mean i guess people say like in hindsight you know people look at olivier and wells but like of their time they're so i mean i think like least near their deaths people are like finally like oh wow really fucked up on you guys yeah well this that's it's just the Hollywood machine, man. So it just like it, it def- it has to define you as that a was the Hollywood th- machine in the background. Yeah, there was. <laughs> it's coming to get us now. <laughs> it has to define you as a thing, and then you know. So Orson Welles is like an eccentric weirdo. It's like, but yeah, but Orson Welles is also 
a fan, utterly fantastic actor. And that's why I think what's interesting about Olivier is they couldn't put a tag on Olivier because Olivier was so chameleon-like well, in, in his uh, He also roles. didn't need this fucking shit. No, he could just <laughs> go back. At any moment, he could have been like, he kind of got like, Pushed to go to Hollywood. He kind of wasn't really excited about going to Hollywood. Right. Well, the only reason, like, one of the big reasons he went to Hollywood was just, you know, the war was breaking out and there was those options. And he he still kind of went back for that. But I don't know. They do that. I have the same conversation with myself about um, Janet McTeer, who's like this brilliant stage performer, but always gets cast in these, like, really crappy, like, like supporting roles. In this stuffy kind of. Yeah. And she's good in them. And she's been nominated for Oscars and stuff like that. She's great. But, like, she's owns, like, a theater stage. But she's, in movies, she's, like, some new crime boss, whatever, on, like, the second season of Ozark. It's like, come on, this is... Oh, is she really do we have to do this? Does Janet McTeer have to do... Is she really do... on the second season? I haven't watched yeah. it yet. That's good. Like, does that she really more. have to do the second season of fucking Ozark? Does like... Laura Linney have to do Ozark? I like Ozark. <sighs> Ozark. Have you watched it yet? No, I've not seen Ozark. We can't, we can't do that. We're keeping that in. Yeah, I'll keep it in. Okay. Ozark is fine. It's not great, but it is entertaining. Son of a, you, got, you got to watch at least something. How do we get here? Well, you went on Janet <laughs> McTiernan, and then you started shitting on Ozark, and I liked the first. I haven't watched the second season yet. Mm. Now, like, so much shit to watch. I haven't watched TV. anything. I'm a bad, I'm a bad so much modern TV. citizen. I, mean, I kind of want to get off on a, on a tangent about television, about how much of a time suck it is. But we'll have to do a separate point. television episode. Um, yeah, it was cool. I mean, it was it was interesting. Um, it was an interesting movie. It was very of its time, well, but it was clearly I... doing something. It was clearly doing something a little different with the casting of um, with the casting of Olivia and the depth that he gave. And I, I think that's the thing. Like ultimately, the reason this shows up on my list is, I think if you want to get a child invested in a black and white film that rests heavily in in what it's doing so you know a lot of people will introduce like a, a child's like wizards of oz because you know it's black and white then it becomes this really colorful fantasy we did like That's, chaplin movies yeah or like a chaplin or like a buster keaton sort of film i think but if you want to like dig them deep into kind of like the heavier black and white cinema this works because it's not very long and, and you know the first thirty minutes will be a bit of a chore, but once Olivia gets on state, like on screen, there's, I think, at least for like a ten, twelve year old, there's there's so much there that is intriguing. Well, it's not I mean, very sexual kid, either. No, it's not. No, I mean it's made in the code. They don't think they even kiss. You know, there is a lot of face snuggling, and lips around faces. Yeah, but no, you know, like there's the censorship board was right there. When they're when they're grasping desperately for each other, it's just like a really intense hug. There was that really weird blowjob scene too. <laughs> <laughs> I was really asking why David Niven was doing with that cow, but who knows? He just got to do it. Sometimes you but no, seriously, just just to wrap it up, it's just like this is, you know, there there's interesting decisions made in this movie. Um, but it, it, this reason it shows up on my list and, and this low is it, it's a good movie. You know, William Meyer is a very competent director. Um, Best Years of Our Lives is is fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, ben Hur, I don't really like, nah, but it's, but it's, it's good. It's it's it sells. It leans into its. Epicness. If you want to listen to a podcast about Ben Hur, you can go check out Unspooled. They spend like an hour our, on our rival, Ben fucking Hur. Our rivals, Unspooled. Yeah, Paul Shear shivering Shear. in his boots, <laughs> looking at looking at the play counts. Do you think he wears our, boots or is our, just Converse? Is our twenty six plays to his like sixteen thousand. Take that, Paul Shear. Yeah. 
I bet you there's one person that listens to us that doesn't listen to them, and that really gets under his gears. And now they're all going to leave us, and they're going to they're gonna listen to him. Like, we like gap teeth. <laughs> I like Paul Shear. I'm not, I'm not making, making I like Paul Shear, too. And I, like, a, I like how, how it's a, me. It's a, good, it's a good podcast. I'm just joking. Yeah, yeah. But, um, but no, it's just, it's, it, it's really just Olivier. Yeah. And, and if you want an introduction to, to masterclass acting, um, watch anything by Olivier, but, but this is kind of a good introduction because it's, it's very elementary in what he's doing, but he's doing a lot of work. Mm. This is the first kind of like true one man show that's on my list. There's going to be several other ones. Castaway. Uh, no, I was thinking another Olivier film, oh, um, nice. which actually has more good performances too, but Olivier is directing at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so that's why it's my number 89. All uh, right. We'll take a break and we'll be back with, uh, Tom's 89. Welcome back, welcome back, welcome back. I don't like that show. Welcome back, Cotter. Yeah. No, who liked that show? John Travolta. Um, my number 89 is Room 237. Oh, The Shining. Yeah, Mario, Room 237. The documentary about The Shining... Oh, because The Shining's much higher on your list? The Shining is not on my list at all. I actually don't like The Shining. No, me neither. Um, But I just just had to bring that up. Let me just say who directed this. It's directed by Rodney Asher. I don't know who Rodney Asher is. And I don't care who Rodney Asher is. Um, I'm going to look it up. Moving on. I don't know either. Uh, So, yeah, this is a documentary about The Shining. It's not about the making of The Shining. It's not about, um, you know... Behind the scenes behind of the, the drama. Scenes. It's not about Stephen King's opinion of The Shining. It's not comparing different versions of The Shining. It's not <laughs> According e- to his Wikipedia, there is a one-sentence description that begins, Rodney Asher is an American film director known for his 2012 documentary, Room 237, moving on to awards. Period. Yeah, that's it. Okay, good. Um, so what this movie is, is... A documentary about certain people's interpretations of The Shining, um, and what they've what he's done is he's recorded these people giving lecture type talks. It sounds like about their theories on what is actually happening in The Shining, and he's cut them up and then curated them in this kind of fashion that resembles. Like a, a like a maze of of thought, and intercuts that with images from The Shining, really digging into like sometimes slow motion shots, sometimes um, still frames, um, digging into how these people have seen this movie. Um, I have seen this movie four or five times, maybe, um, and every single time I, it just blows my mind not because i think all of these people are correct i actually think that most <laughs> of them are very the, incorrect you don't think the moon landing was staged it's not even the moon landing. by stanley kubrick and, <laughs> and then he the made the shining, shining was just there to like beg us to to see the fact that he had to do it and to interpret his interpretation i actually think that he's saying that he made this shining because he had to really get something off of his chest tell so his he wife. put all these really obvious secrets or all these obvious Easter eggs, to use a modern term, to 
show people like look at i did the moon landing i have to tell somebody about it which i is, did it i did which it. is ridiculous i mean everyone knows that the flare on the image of the moon landing is from the glass city that the aliens live in it's just what it is jesus christ I mean, did you ever ever watch a david ike lecture he's a lizard people guy oh okay so he would be very into the idea that there's a glass city on the moon I've gone. To, my appreciation of this movie has gone so far as to tell you a quick story. Did I tell you the story already? I don't know. I, Not on mic. I was <laughs> I was um, applying for to get into a um, teaching certification program, and part of the interview um, that I had to do was I had to give a, a five to ten minute lesson on anything, and pretend like the old white people that were doing my interview were my high school students and I was explaining stuff to them. Which I mean, I was basically the same thing. Cool. Old white people, high school students sure. in urban areas. Um, and the first thing that came out of my mouth was I was like, well, I'm going to, what I would do, I didn't get into the program because I bombed this section because I didn't give a lesson because who cares? Um, but the first thing that I said to these people, I would teach, I, I would teach a high school, if I was teaching a high school class on the skill of close reading, um, you know, close reading a novel. It was for an English professor um, or English teacher. The first thing I would do is I would show this movie. It's the first thing I would do. And you can see these two people's faces just kind of be like, what? And even, and I was talking about the movie, like very enthusiastically for like another couple of seconds. And he was like, wait, but why would you show this movie? Um, and it's because it's a, perfect explanation of how to read and how to watch movies um it is not specifically correct i don't know if any of the theories are correct but the idea that they've come up with these theories is just amazing i'm amazed at the depth of thinking that has gone into coming up with these theories oh yeah some of those theories are so intricate like the um Baking, baking soda, baking powder. Is that it? Baking. The yeah, baking the baking powder, powder the Kellogg's uh, baking like, powder. Like the way it's arranged and, and the color palette in which it's right. arranged. That proves, or that was this guy's, um, Bill Blakemore, that was his jumping off point to thinking about this movie as Stanley Kubrick's comment on the genocide of the American Indians. Yeah. Where the first time you see the Calumet baking can, it is um, facing us and it is an. It symbolizes, you see the whole name, and apparently the word calumet means um, peace or peace pipe or like to make peace. And so it's, and it's shot right over Dick Halloran's head, played by Scatman Crothers, um, who if we were talking about The Shining as a movie, we'd talk about how he's terrible. Um, it's Take sho- that, Scatman. It's shown over his head, and this guy interprets that to mean that um, he is making he's making peace with Danny. He is trying to reach out to Danny um, as like an emissary of the, of, of the overlook and, and make peace with him. But the next time we see the Calumet baking Kansas, when Jack Nicholson's Jack Torrance is locked in that same, um, you know, storage, like the food closet, pantry. whatever. It's not a refrigerator, but whatever. Um, it's like a pantry. Yeah. Pantry. I don't know why I couldn't come up with pantry. Um, he's locked in there and there's he's, a fucking restaurant right down the street. And he's talking to Grady the ghost waiter at the bar, um, and the Calumet cans are turned so you can't see the full sign. And he interprets that to mean that the piece has been broken. 
And now Jack is going to hunt Danny and Wendy, whereas before he was really just kind of, you know, living in a ghost house. But now yeah. he's going to try to kill his family. Like, officially, he's going to try to... He's not going to try to subdue them or talk to them or anything. He's going to try to kill them on behalf of the hotel. Um, and then, I mean, it goes so much further. And then, I don't know how you felt about the elevator, his exp- explanation for the elevator scene, that they talk about in the movie about how the Overlook is built on an Indian burial ground. And this Bill Blakemore guy interprets that... Ter- interprets the blood coming out of the elevator scene by thinking of the fact that, like, an elevator shaft would have to go into the ground. So that the elevator shaft is literally built on top of not just the not just the graves, but the bodies of old Indians, and it is Indian blood that is coming out of of the, the like, these elevators. And it isn't until Wendy sees it, um, which we don't even know if it's real, even when Wendy sees it, that it's a kind of, it acts as a kind of, Symbol, symbolic way that we are not seeing what we did to these people because we have no idea if it's real. Yeah. Um, but like, what for, the, <laughs> what but the no, hell? It is the interesting thing about this film. I, I'm not the biggest fan of it just because it's it's a little scatterbrained. Oh it, yeah, it, so scatterbrained. Um, like like the pulling down of the theories is 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 great and it's a great kind of film theory approach to how just the average person can can look at a film any film and you know the shining is is an interesting example because because you know kubrick did do a lot of imagery and a lot of symbology in his films that you could maybe possibly take you could pull things from yeah but people look at anything and they they take everything from it i mean look at just the the numerous youtube videos now about the reason why dr strange said the number of possible combinations and events uh, where they face Thanos in Infinity War and that there's a real reason behind that. Right. And that people broke down the numbers about how there, there must be theories. And, like, that, this is what people do. And this is makes film and, and art in general such an interesting media. Um, and it, it makes this, this movie, you know, even, even as much as I don't think the composition of it works, interesting is the fact that it, it centers out how somebody can make the most blasé piece of media um, – which I'm not saying that The Shining is, but people that's are the fair, most though. popcorn, fun piece of media that's just at face value and takes so much from it. I think I think the the popular the popular argument is that like all media is political, mm-hmm. no matter what. I'm, I'm a big board oh, game guy, um, and a lot of people say how like there's problems with like a board game even as common as like some like Settlers of Catan, and like that's political and there's like a lot of discussions and arguments about the politics of it. Um, and it's a board game where, yeah, people are settling a land that could have been raised by indigenous people. But the fact that you, you derive a, a argument on geopolitics from yeah. a dice rolling game is interesting. And it's just this, this kind of enumerates that and, and kind of punctuates that and that people come up with the most intricate ideas from a movie, a ghost story. You know? Well, I mean, in this movie even goes... This movie kind of shows the opposite side of that, too. Like, where <clears throat> what is interesting becomes simultaneously not interesting. Because it's it's almost like they're grasping at straws to find something. So there's the one point where one of these guys... Um, I think it's Jay Weedner. 
um, who has made a movie about made a movie called um, like the magician Stanley Kubrick or something, who says that Stanley Kubrick and he can prove it apparently airbrushed his face into the clouds in the opening sequence of The Shining, where the VW bug is you know scaling the mountains and there's the helicopter shot and you know you have that um, you have the the music going on in the background and uh, you know it's all so heavy. Um, and he claims that you can you can see Stanley Kubrick's face in the thing. I mean, then the movie actually even slows down, kind of frame by frame, so you can see it. I didn't. I've never seen it. Did you see it? No. Oh, I shrugged. I forgot. <clears throat> we're on, we're on Mike. Um, <laughs> and I think to to your point, the idea that Stanley Kubrick would airbrush his face into the clouds has no value. It's not even speaking to a larger like. You know, so the plight of the Native American Indians. There's a guy here it's that an thinks egg. the movie. But in I, I think one of the interesting things about this movie, and one of the troubling things about this movie, it's where this movie like rides a line for me is how these people, um, try. It's like the Easter egg culture. They're like, look, I saw a thing. It's like, oh, well, what does it mean? Because if 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 it's a work of art, you would have to imagine that like putting something like that in there would have some larger meaning in the context of the whole film. So like. He's like, oh, Stanley Kubrick's really, you know, a lot of these people, they say that, um, like, Stanley Kubrick purposefully laid, like, lots of intentional, like, layers onto his movies. But, like, what's the layer that supports the cloud in the face? Yeah, nothing. Or, or the face in the clouds. Nothing. There is none. Um, it's just a thing that people think they see to kind of justify or, or even, um, you know, enlighten their attachment to a movie. You know what I mean? It's almost not enough. And I feel this way too. Like sometimes like I'll, um, you know, I'll really dig into a movie that like I really like just to kind of prove that I really like it. Example. Oh, like, well, I mean, a movie we're going to talk about a little later is Darren Aronofsky's Mother. So like I immediately went home and actually on the car ride home, I was talking out loud to myself, like puzzling out like the nature of this movie and like how does this work and what is happening i was saying other things to myself in the car right now. <laughs> we'll talk about that later um another example is like the last time i watched antichrist <laughs> lars von trier's antichrist um several months ago i had three pages of notes from like my my third viewing of the film we could even say like my our conversation last week my conversation last week about metropolis and like the fact of maybe not the film itself but the how i derived it's socio-political impact in what it did to a studio which which could be reaching but like that's even an example of tying yourself to a film and tying yourself to the history of a film and kind of coming to conclusions from that sure it's this this the joy one of the things that i uh, one of the reasons i really like this movie one of the reasons on my list is that like i find a lot of joy in these people's joy of unpacking this movie um and it's there's a lot of people they laugh a lot in the movie like talking about stuff they'll be like oh you know he did this dissolve and it looked like this giant um, this janitor was like a giant he was mopping the floor of like um, you know he was mopping the the forest floor it's like well, why is that funny but like he thinks it's so funny well, the thing I loved and like it's it's one of the crazy it's the craziest idea to me um, you know just just the the common conception that like we talked about Stanley Kubrick faking the um, the moon landing, um, the excitement in that guy's voice oh. talking about how it's like the shining is his cry 
to to somebody to say like he had to do this and he's like i was thinking maybe i was crazy about this and then danny stands up and he's got the apollo 11 sweater on just the excitement in his voice even though i think he's saying is batshit crazy and wrong (laughs) it's intoxicating in certain ways you know and like necessarily this movie doesn't work for me but the tale it's telling does and the fact of the reason we have this podcast is we're enamored by by film. Oh yeah, and this um, is like and redig in the movies. Like we haven't really started talking about this yet, but I think pretty soon, like in the next ten to fifteen films, is when we're gonna start doing deep digs into film. Yeah, I think around my like seventy, like my seventy three, seventy two ish is where I start really digging deep in the movies and like I'll have long conversations. It won't be a Wuthering Heights kind of like oh, I like this because Lawrence Olivier, but like it'll be like real. Deep reasons. But if Lawrence Olivier is in it, you're gonna like it. No, oh, yeah. Um, but yeah, and this is why. That's why. That's what's interesting about this is it kind of like captures that, right? And like, for me, I want to use like another example about like how that that's or not not the same guy. It's a different guy. Um, but the same kind of thing where like he's figured it out. Like he's figured it the fuck out. Um, and the same guy that talks about that it, it's a movie about the plight of the American Indians also notices that like. Um, the pattern on the rug in room 237 looks like a phallus and a vagina, but on, and it's all, everything's all rounded, but the pattern in the hall, on the rug in the hallway is all squared off, and he uses that. Much he, like a penis. <laughs> like, like a trapezoid. Um, he thinks that the room, the rug in room 237 symbolizes the evolution of man through the process of intercourse and the family and not evolution of man like in like man being born but in the growth of the intellect and self-awareness of man um but the rug in the hallway symbolizes the growth of mankind through societal pressure so where everything's rounded off and there's a penis going into a vagina in the one room, in room 237, in the hallway, when it's not as intimate and, like, the hotel kind of asserts its dominance, um, you know, we've got, this, we've got this really symbolic rug, Mario. A symbolic rug that two of these people have noticed and noted in the movie that seems to change direction from one scene to another. What the fuck does that mean? What does it mean? It could mean no, exactly. anything. It's amazing. No, it's it's fun like that, and I think that's what's interesting about this film. You know, for you and then and, and to a certain extent for me, is like read read both don't care about The Shining. Oh, I've never liked The Shining, and I've given it lots of chances, specifically because of this movie. Like, I don't like the book. I don't like the movie. I don't really care for the TV miniseries that follows no. it up, even though it's closer to. the to the to the book, but I never uh, found a problem with the book. I mean, I, we can have a brief fine. conversation about The Shining. Um, I read it in high school, so like I, I read it. I read it a couple of years ago just to see because of because of this, and um, I liked the book a little more on the second reading. But the TV miniseries, the Stephen Weber thing, when you see all that stuff in person, is really goofy. Yeah, no, it's goofy. But that's why my problem with the book is I think the book is too goofy. I right. think there's a lot of that's why I like the revival film that is probably in development hell by now but that they're gonna make like that's not gonna fucking no. work i mean it works up until the end i mean did you i also one of the things i really loved about this do we really have a, we're not really gonna talk about stephen king a lot this uh at all right no oh shawshank redemption oh 
We were both talking about that. We'll keep that in. But um, we both really like Stephen King. The interesting thing is, like, we both really we Stephen like King, yeah. Stephen King. And on King. the subject of Stephen King. Surprise, the horror guy likes Stephen King. One of my favorite parts of this movie, one of my favorite theories, is that um, when Halloran is going up to the Overlook after Danny shines to him that he needs help. And he passes a wreck. And in the wreck, a semi has, has crashed and, 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 and crushed a red Volkswagen. And this is a direct message from Kubrick to King because in the novel, Jack Torrance's car is a red Volkswagen, but in the movie, it's a yellow Volkswagen. And what Kubrick is saying in that scene is a big F you to Stephen King. He's saying, this is my vehicle. I have wrecked your vehicle and everybody in the world can see it. The thing about that, like, theory, I've heard that from many actually different sources. Oh, really? Yeah, that's actually a pretty common one. I wouldn't, that's the one that actually wouldn't... I particularly wouldn't you think be surprised. Would, you think I would that? not be surprised for Cooper because, like, they, there was a very... Oh, they were the, like a resentful yeah. relationship on both sides, yeah. Which, I mean, it's, in, it's interesting because they're both really good masters of their craft, but they're very much controlling individuals. It's not a David Yates, J.K. Rowling situation where J.K. Rowling is like, do this, and David Yates is like, I like money. <laughs> that's, um, that's the exact conversation. Yeah. Um, uh, but no, so I, that's one I wouldn't be surprised for it to be true. But then there's like, um, I don't know, what did you think? And that's what's interesting. It's like the fact that like there is there is these kind of like, there's a lot of these batshit fucking crazy theories, and in the mix is like some of these theories are like, I can see that, maybe. Yeah. Well, let me, so I'm going to run two more theories by you. Just and then you know we can tie a bow on this episode and, and move Get on with our notches. lives here. Um, the woman, Julie Kearns, and she's the one that drew the maps. Mm-hmm. So there's she has two theories that kind of pervade this movie. One is um, the the Minotaur idea. Yeah, yeah, which is insane what is she i'm not sure what she's looking at i don't know really why that would be a, a statement like why that'd be a thing well she, so where it's the, but i didn't get her reasoning i didn't i didn't get what it what the end game was and i guess it related to the idea of the maze no there's a cosmic nature to it but like why would but she's using i mean that I think, be made i don't know and why would he care yeah, no, exactly. There was nothing. There's like no reason. Like, like I can understand where you could pull that from, but I well, didn't I mean, get. It was a reach. Why? So she took that skier thing, and she's like, "Well, that's a minotaur." And then she looked across the door has, in the has rec skiers, room. Has skiers are known to be has skiers that cast in shadow with you know are look a lot like minotaurs. Um, and then she looked across the door, and this is in the rec room of the Overlook, the Colorado room. And there's a there's a, a the fucking Bronco. And so she's like, oh, it's a cowboy and a bull man. Like, and they're on the opposite sides of the door. There's obviously a relation. Then he goes into the maze. And, oh, and it's just, it's like a cosmic experience. And, like, the gods are involved and blah, blah, blah. But then she has the other theory that she, that she came up with in. She vomits onto the screen. <laughs> that she um, arrived at, that she made the maps because of. Which is the scene where um, Jack Torrance goes to talk to Ullman, the hotel manager, in his office. Oh, the walking through the... Yeah. And there's a window I in the background know. that, using the maps that she's made, she's determined, like, can't actually be there. Yeah. I, I don't get I, her point. I don't get her point either, but I think it's... It, That's the one that lost me. So this I was like, is... 
Also, like the in, imposing plants. Imposing plants. She talks about how like the the plants look imposing. Oh, yeah. She was. Well, how are they imposing? They I look think, like so, like I see that scene. I'm like, oh, okay. Go through the. Door. Oh, oh yeah. The um the plants in the behind the window. Yeah, and yeah, the light, yeah. and it's like that doesn't fucking. I do. I that's the one like. So all the theories in this movie work for me, except for like hers. And the fact, like all every, and I, I think that maybe this was intentional. In the fact that, like, he kind of like digs further and further into, yeah, it. yeah. Because I like the Native American one. You and can the Holocaust, see reaches the Holocaust one too. Yeah, you can see re- like especially with like what the fact that Kubrick wanted to like wanted to make a Holocaust the, movie. The, 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 area, what, area the Aryan papers, papers, yeah. yeah. Um, like those, you see correlations to, and the Apollo Eleven one, as batshit crazy as it is, it was a prevailing theory at the time. Or even the subliminal but, messages one. Yeah, yeah, and like all that. Coalesce to something, to some outside attachment. And the thing I found interesting about this theory was the fact that it's so bonkers. Right. Well, I think, in the, I think from Rodney Asher, like what he's doing here, has kind of um, right after that he talks about uh, what's his what's that guy's name? I've got that guy's name here. Um, John Fell Ryan. Chuck Grassley <laughs> makes a point about how. In a couple of scenes when Halloran is giving um, Danny and Wendy a tour of the kitchens, there's a discrepancy into like the direction in which they're walking, in which they enter these rooms, in which they come out of the rooms. Like they're kind of they're entering in one direction and then they're coming out in on the opposite side of the hallway. So they're entering on the right side and they're coming out on the left side. Um, and then even in like the maps that they that they draw on the screen of Danny's travels on the big wheel. Um, it's making this larger point, I think, that they're all kind of making, which is Stanley Kubrick kind of designed the sets um, to kind of keep throwing you off. Well, because it, 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 makes, it makes horror. Right. Like, if you do, if you create a mise-en-scene and, and you create a shot composition and, and, a, and a body, because like, a lot of films, and we talked about this earlier, uh, and we'll talk about this later, but we talked about um, in a horror state of place is a big thing. Yeah. Uh, Halloween, which we'll talk about a lot later, is is kind of hailed for its body of place. You know where everyone is. You know why they're there. You know why they're walking there. And it kind of makes like that figure better. Yep. Like it makes that kind of shape Michael Myers figure better because you don't know where he is or why he's he doesn't he doesn't fit with the direction. Mm-hmm. And a lot of critical reviews for this, and this is one of the things I think The Shining does extremely well in terms of horror. And then the people just kind of take it to another level is the fact that he eschews that. And, you know... You never so, know where anybody so the, is yeah, ever. Never know where anybody is. People enter in wrong angles. The, yeah, the, the window is... I didn't see that because I just didn't notice it. But the window might not be able to physically exist. The carpets probably do change direction. Mm-hmm. Cans probably do change direction. Because Stanley Kubrick had such control in this mise-en-scene. It's such control on the blocking of his film and the shot composition and on and on... You know how everything was shaped. That he would know that this, in the back of your head, makes you unsettled. Like people get bothered when they see an image and something's off, or they see two shots together and they notice something's wrong. There's, mm-hmm. it's it's a basic kind of psychological principle. But it's interesting that people now have seen this like this fucking crazy lady, and <laughs> taken so much from it. Yeah. And I do think that's an interesting idea. Which is a good point because there's that one guy that makes the point of the it's fact a that gold star point. Yeah, it's a gold star. 
two left. <laughs> we should be tracking this. It's too bad we don't have a board that we can show on our Instagram oh, I'm tra- account. I'm, I'm tracking it. Oh, okay. Oh, speaking of Instagram, keep talking. Okay. Um, there's the scene where the guy talks about um, when Wendy is confronting Jack, when he's supposed to be writing, um, he's confronting Jack, or she's confronting Jack um, at his typewriter, and in one shot, there's a chair behind Jack's head. But then in the next scene, the next shot, the chair is not there. And then um, Jeffrey Cox, who makes the point about um, that this movie is about the Holocaust, uses the, ger- the, the brand of the typewriter to really kind of hammer home this idea that... Um, you know, it's, a, it's apparently a German ty- German brand typewriter, um, and he uses that as like his first example of Stanley Kubrick saying, "Like I'm making a movie about the Holocaust," but he also makes the point of saying that the the typewriter changes color from one scene to another scene. It's a it's a totally different color typewriter, um, and you know, this movie has the benefit of kind of flashing back and forth between those two scenes, so we can see the difference see the difference in color yeah um and where they're using that as an example of these really of like a lot these broader issues and but also more specific issues it's about the holocaust it's about the genocide of the american indians i think it's probably closer to what you said where he was just like i'm just trying to throw people off i'm just trying to make it uncomfortable for you so you don't ever know where you are. Which floor is this? The rugs are all different. I, I don't think this would be so interesting for the documentary, though. This opinion. No, I wouldn't. But that's. I think that's one of the the. But yeah, it's, the it's funny, but also but the, the interesting f- thing is is like we're making another opinion on it. Like re. Just just in in and this is what, like once again, and I, I think I can understand why this movie is on your list. Just going down to the basis of it is we are making another assumption, based upon people we've never talked to, people who are dead, you know, and, like, we're saying that that's what he did it for. For all we know, it was a mistake in the film. For all we know, it was and for gonna, some purpose that we don't know. For, for some reason, for all we know, well, we're pretty sure, he faked the moon landing. It seems reasonable enough that he faked the moon landing. I personally think he faked the candy assassination, but that's a different point. <laughs> was there a flare? The puff, was the there puff, a flare in the background? The puff of white smoke that's on the grassy knoll. That was a glass no, city? No, 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 what that was? The candle being blown out because he filmed with natural lighting. Like, oh, and very yeah, lighting. yeah, yeah. There's just God, a lot of candles. Sense. And, but they're, they're painted to look joke. like the grass. I'm really proud of that joke. That's a good one. Um, yeah, that's a good one. That's a JFK 2. Oliver Stone's working <laughs> on right now. Um, Oliver Stone and Denise D'Souza. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> I don't know. I'm and starring Sean Penn. <laughs> yes, I can't wait for and that. And James Woods. Oh, man. This is getting good. Oh wait, he was in JFK. The right? Br- no, he wasn't in JFK. He wasn't in JFK. Yeah. Okay. Um, but I'm just going to close with the I, yeah. This it speaks to me from a film level, but it also speaks to me from like a just general process level. I mean, I this is kind of how I approach my everyday life. Everything means something more than you know it is on the surface. And I think I, I think especially in film theory and film criticism, you need to do that. Um, if you look at so many of the films that we have in our list or so many films that come out every day on just a basic surface level, a lot of times that's appropriate um, because they're meant to just be based on the surface level. I don't think Saw 3 is trying to make a, a point. But even something like Saw 6, 
like, and I'm bringing this to Saul to make it really <laughs> elementary, is trying to make it some sort of weird point on the healthcare system, mm. you know? And it's a Saw movie, but it's trying to say something. Yeah. Um, well, I just heard Keegan-Michael Key give an interview about the new Predator, and he said it was about how we treat veterans in this country. Like, that was with the, uh, the underlying messages about, like, veteran healthcare. And that's, you know... That's that's the great thing about film. That's the great thing about all forms of art and all forms of media. And like film, like speaks to me and Tom, and speaks to a lot of people from the various podcasts, the various literature, sure. oh, and yeah. all the criticism, and the fact that anything that can make you think more deeply about what you're seeing than what you're seeing is important. Mm. I mean, I, I think one of the best things a person can do is always be analytical in, in anything they see. You know. Yeah, don't, don't just, just don't just view, like sometimes you can just do that you know like you can watch a you can watch a, a football match or watch a whatever and, and just watch it for what it is and sometimes you don't even do, you can analyze it but you know when you have the the emotional and mental energy too it's it's good to dig into something because it's fun because like even if you're fucking off base and you're wrong like you can take at least you take that from it for yourself well, but it, it gives you some sort of excitement and it's exciting only, and not only that but it makes you it draws you personally into the thing because you've done your own thinking yeah. about it. So there's um, a point in the movie where Bill Blakemore, who's one of the theorists, um, quotes um, T.S. Eliot. And he says, you know, history has many cunning passages, which he uses to relate to the idea that this movie is about the genocide of the American Indians. And when he, you know, uses the maze or he counts the maze as a symbol or, um, you know, demonstrating that thing. Um but the idea that, you know, he did a T. You know, he's quoting from T. S. Eliot, who was one of the prominent um, purveyors of not purveyors. He was one of the prominent um, proponents proponents of uh, new criticism back in the 1920s. A way of reading literature where um, the use of images, symbolism, and metaphor, um, or they read literature looking for images, symbolism, and metaphor that convey messages an emotion rather than like um, exposition. Um, all of that stuff goes directly to my brain because I was literally just doing that. And I was using T.S. fucking Eliot to do that. Um, you know, he wrote this, he wrote this poem called the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock. And there's a line. My in the, ex's like favorite poem. Oh, really? So there's a line in the poem that includes the word footman, but the F in footman is capitalized. And I once wrote a paper on the F. And this is before I saw this movie. Um, I think I watched it on Netflix like for the first time and then just watched it on Netflix continuously, regularly, for until it left Netflix. Um, the digging in. It, the digging in makes you closer to things. And I think we're living in a society where we kind of all want to stay... A fair distance length, away yeah. from from all this stuff because we just we just want to be able to say we saw it. You know what I mean? We don't want to like we don't want it to be a part of our lives. I mean, there's that there's a um, a quote in the Owen Gleiberman book about how much book um, his his most recent one. I forget what it was. It's oh, just yeah. it's kind of like an autobiography. Just in case people just in case people want to. I don't read remember it. the name, of but his, his most recent. Yeah, um, where he talks about the idea as film back you know 
however many years ago, really kind of like defined who you were. And it wasn't so much because like I saw a movie and I liked that and I decided to do that. It was because you like took it apart and you like looked at its insides and you were just like, oh, this is me. This is my movie. Like I've, you know, I've looked deep into the well of this movie and I'm, and I am it. I see some of myself in there. And, um, this movie is just like a perfect example of that. It's a whole movie that just, (laughs) that just does that. Um, and I can't not love it. I, it's just, like I said, I've seen it four or five times and every single time I feel like I'm going to be bored at some point. I'm not bored. At some point, I'm just like, I already know all these theories, but how they piece them together and how they... And even there's the one at the end of the movie where the guy talks about how that um, uh, theorist mastermind who like refused to be interviewed for the movie um, has this idea that the movie was meant to be played backwards. And so at one showing, they played the movie backwards and forwards, but there's all these really weird images that come out of it. Um, You know, and... I have to imagine that Kubrick clearly didn't mean to have this movie played backwards and forwards, and it's just it's just a, a coincidence, happy coincidence that these coincidence. things kind of line up. Um, but if you're the right person and you have been doing the work, that must feel amazing. Yeah, it must feel like unbelievable to kind of have you know a scene where you know you see the the twins dead on the floor. And Jack Nicholson making a Jack Nicholson face, um, and it looks like he's his eyes are bleeding, and it looks like he's like got blood all over his face, like symbolizing something that's supposed to be coming later. Um, you know, I've been through that with books. I've been through that with movies. I've been through. I mean, we went. You know, I mentioned Mother before. I went through that with Mother, and then I got home that night after seeing it and texted you immediately. This movie is about this. You know what I mean? Like I've just been. Yeah, we talked. We talked a lot about it. Um, But that's we'll talk a lot about that. But that's and that's why like Mother's on my list because of that because I could could dig into it and that's my movie now. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's. So I think to finish, what did you take from Room Two Thirty Seven? What did you glean from it? What what interesting little theory do you have? Um, on Room Two Thirty Seven or on The Shining on. Room 237 itself. Well, here's the thing about Room 237 that I would say I took away from it, which kind of has been coming with no, but like I mean subsequent deep, viewings. It's, it's, it's got to be a, a deep, deep thing. Dig. Yeah. Um, I actually think it's constructed, and I mentioned this a little earlier, but I get the feeling that it's constructed in um, similar, because they talk about the maze all the time. The I was going to say the, the same thing. The maze is a it's big part. It's like a maze. Uh, yeah. And it's just, it weaves in and out, and it goes back, and it goes forward, and it kind of ends in this in this place, but you still have to go back to the beginning. You know what I mean? And then it, and it ends with the movies kind of playing backwards and forwards simultaneously. And it's just, it has this um, really circuitous maze-like structure. That I was going to say the same really thing. It's excellent. structured like the maze. Yeah. Like I felt the pacing is, is, is odd. The, the, the structure is odd, but it felt kind of like the hedge maze because it keeps going back to the hedge maze. Yeah. And it kind of feels like it's about the hedge maze. So Rodney Asher, I'm gonna, I'm gonna tweet at you. Yeah, I'm sure you'd like that, and I'm gonna be like, <laughs> was our analysis of Room Two Thirty Seven correct? Is the structure of the movie like a hedge maze? Anything else you want to say about Room Two Thirty Seven? No, I'm good. And let's fucking talk about our Twitter because I just said that. Mm. Right? You can reach us on Twitter, twitter.com/slash 
film pivotal. We have a real attitude about us tonight. Follow us on Twitter and send us hate mail now, or happy mail, or whatever you want to send us on Twitter. Um, at twitter.com slash film as I said. Uh, you know, yeah, heart, fil- heart fil- a couple. Is it still film pivotal? It's still film pivotal. I'm keeping pivotal? that. Even if even if we get big, okay, we won't. Film but pivotal. if we get big, we're going to be film it's pivotal. Fine. It's fun. Um, you can also heart one of our photos that sporadically <laughs> pop up. Uh, is that what as, it is on Instagram? It's hearting it? Yeah. Connecticut Valley uh, Brewing and Kent Falls have hearted a picture of ours. They, I don't think they even look at it. They just see they're, they're attached to it. But, you know, if they did look at it and they like what we're doing, if you want to send us one free half beer, we will gladly take it. And we'll and talk we'll, about it on the air. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about glowingly, unless you're bad sons. Then we'll be honest. Actually, we'll be honest about all the beers. We're but, always honest about the beers. You know what? Because we love Counterweight, and we, we did not... Love which that is a good thing. Man. Which is also a great thing about beer. And we dig into beers too. You always dig into things. Is the fact that like that's why we like drinking the local beers because the local beer community is all about digging in deep. And you know, well, there are so many recipes in beers, which is great. We're only doing beers there within, for the most part. We had slush till the one time, but for most of our beers are within. We have a rule of like the farm to table, hundred miles away from us. And I feel like Connecticut has to be touching them, like a little bit. Yeah, we've yeah. been New York, we've been Massachusetts, Rhode Island. Yeah, yeah, but everything's been within a day drive of mm-hmm. us. Um, and the great thing about beer is there's like so many beers, but the community's still so tight that like if you don't like a beer, you give constructive criticism. Maybe we weren't so constructive with Bad Sons. And you you know, they, that's, that's what beer is for. Like, they they so also many... have a lot of beers. So yeah, go drink so another just, beer. And, re- and yeah. refer. We'll, we'll do Bad Sons again. There's been a couple Bad Sons I've had that I've liked. Yeah, and hit us up on Twitter and say, like, you didn't like that beer? Or Try Instagram. this beer. Or, in- or, or Instagram, Instagram at com slash Pivotal Film. Or, or Gmail. Oh. At Pivotal Film Podcast at gmail.com. Yeah. Or, or uh, I think that's it. Yeah, because you can't really send us anything at our website. But you can look at our website. If you give us so many hits from a certain site saying, I don't like this. Like, if, <laughs> if you create a website saying, drink this beer and, like, go to PivotalFilm.com mm-hmm. quite often, uh, maybe, maybe, I think, maybe we'll understand. I think there's a comment section on under there, each episode. Oh, okay. I don't ever look at it. You should. I, I you don't should, know. You should look at it. But I should. Yeah. yeah I, I handle the Twitter and Instagram. You can handle the website, my friend. <laughs> All right. Well. Um, and you know what you're going to do. When you're looking at that website, and you know what everyone else should do in these these dark times, you should go see uh, a movie. You should drink a beer, and we will talk to you next week. Talk to you next week. 